0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Psalm 16 is a great song. I sent it to my nephew a few weeks back. Uh, He was having a birthday and my brother's family is really going through quite a bit because they're transitioning from Hong Kong uh, to San Francisco and my brother's whole adult life has been lived uh, in asia first in singapore and then teaching in hong kong and uh, i think kind of for the sake of his two adult children that are uh, unmarried right now uh, he's making this transition somewhat on on their behalf Uh, and i sent psalm 16 to tim Uh, he's 33 a lawyer working on a PhD, uh, and will be making this uh, huge transition. Uh, He's adopted by my uh, brother and his wife, Sarah, and he's adopted in Christ as well. Psalm 16, I'll read it through. Listen carefully, this is God's word. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just to begin, let me outline seven ways that this psalm underscores why the Lord is our refuge. That's the first line of the psalm. The Lord is my refuge. But we turn to the Lord as our refuge for preservation for in you I take refuge, for provision, apart from you I have no good thing, for community, the holy people in whom is all my delight, a sense of place, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, for daily guidance, the Lord who counsels me, for everlasting life, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, and for the path of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Woven into this psalm are all of these attributes of care that God provides for us. This is a psalm that you can wake up at 3 a.m. and read with great benefit. It's interesting, I, uh, I hear from people that, uh, especially in relationship to the psalms, that they turn to the psalms in the middle of the night when they can't sleep and their mind is restless and worries that they can't even really explain seem to come over them. Uh, Even you may go to bed with not a worry in your mind and everybody in your family seems to be at peace and secure, and yet you wake up in the middle of the night with concerns. Well, Psalm 16 is a good psalm to, to turn to. Mark Buchanan is a, a writer and a pastor in Canada, lives in British Columbia, and I have enjoyed his books. And in one of his books, he talks about a wedding, a beautiful, idyllic wedding on the sunshine co- co- coast of uh, British Columbia, and he was officiating at this wedding. And it took place in a in a stone chapel All the flowers had come from uh, homes and gardens near the church. Uh, The bride was dressed in a simple white dress, and uh, the groom was in his own suit. And one of the groom's friends, uh, with his scratched-up guitar, led the congregation in songs of praise. And he said it was almost like it was handcrafted. It was simple and yet so elegant. And uh, he said the reception was held on a promont overlooking the, the ocean with uh, white sailboats uh, in the distance, a beautiful day. And uh, the smell of the Cajun shrimp over hickory logs. And, and he just said the couple just couldn't be happier and sort of almost like a taste of Eden. And he got into a conversation with a Philosophy student, and the student, healthy good looking tall, looked at uh, Mark and you didn 't believe all that stuff you spouted at the church, did you and uh, and Mark said, "Yeah, I do. what do you believe And he said, "I tried your religion for a while." but it was just such a burden that I couldn't really live with it. And I came to the conclusion that life justifies living. Life justifies living. And I put that in contrast to one of the titles I give to this psalm, Psalm 16, Living the Resurrection, Living the Resurrection. Life justifies living versus living the resurrection. Because a life in Christ is dependent upon the reality that this life is not all that there is, and death does not end all. Life justifies living versus living the resurrection. My first year of college was 1969. That dates me, Um, especially in relationship to Wes Sharp. His youth time was in the 90s, as he said. Uh, Mine was in the 60s. And you know that in the late 60s, all colleges were kind of uh, in conflict and uh, it was a challenging time with Vietnam and the sexual revolution and all that was going on. And uh, one of my professors, Robert Weber, who became a significant voice for sort of the renewal of the Anglican movement, preached in chapel, and uh, you know, chapel was required at Wheaton, so you had... Uh, 2,000 plus students, Uh, I appreciated chapel very much as a student, and uh, we're all gathered together, and uh, he spoke about the silence of God in that chapel, and uh, he played maybe just a minute or so of a song that Peggy Lee had uh, written and sung uh, and was a hit in 1969. And in that, I don't know if you remember that. Some of you will. Um, Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friend, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. With a very melancholy kind of tone to it, a sad minor key violin in the background, and it began by her saying, you know, her, her family home, she remembers the night that it burnt down. And she's standing out there in her night clothes with her father, and her father says, well, if that's all there is. And then she recounts a time at the circus. And at the end of this uh, day, having been at the circus, if that's all there is then let's uh, break out the booze and let's keep dancing. And breaking up with a boyfriend. And then she says, and I know you're going to say, well, if that's the case, why don't you just end it? And I'd say to you, if that's all there is, if that's all there is, if that's all there is, my friends, let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. I like to put this in sort of a sharp, contrasting juxtaposition. Life justifies living? I don't think so. Mark Buchanan went on in discussion with this 20-something, describing two friends. One friend that was really wrestling with mental illness and another friend that was wrestling with cancer. And you say, what do I say to them? Life justifies living? Or are we living the resurrection? That life is justified by eternity, by a reconciliation with God and by a redemption. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. And then I love the declarative nature of this psalm. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Lord. I think this is one of the things that becomes so important for belonging to a church that we can each say to the other that the Lord is the Lord, that Jesus is Christ, that we believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we can confess that. We can say it. We give words to that. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, that comes not because I'm only into spirituality. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, I think the reality of that line in the psalmist's mind is that Everything that's good comes from you. That the family, the work, the sports, the the, the, the the total package is what I find coming from the Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say, again, a confession, a statement, a proclamation, not one that is embarrassed about at all. I say of the holy people who are in the land, They are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. This is why we constantly come to the place of stressing community, the body life of the church, the fellowship of believers, because we do not follow the Lord alone. We follow the Lord in community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his little book, Life Together, which is so worth reading, writes, We belong to one another in and only through Jesus Christ. Consequently, we no longer seek our salvation, our deliverance, our justification in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. We belong together, not because of what we bring to the community, but because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. The more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. The psalmist delights in God's people. Surely this whole experience with COVID and its continuing impact reminds us of how much we need the fellowship of believers and how dear it is to invest in those relationships how important it is to break out of one's own nuclear family and into the family of god how that in some cases faith trumps blood and how important it is to be known in community. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. And then the one negative thing in the Psalm, verse four, which in the Hebrew way of doing poetry, sometimes the most important thing is right in the center of the Psalm. And I'd say four and five are in competition for the most important thing. The one is negative, the other positive. Verse 4, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. Now, the psalmist is not talking about pagans here. He's talking about Israelites. He's talking about the people of God. And that syncretistic tendency is not only in the global church, it's also in the local church, where we have competing loyalties and competing idols. Uh, Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. One of the things I find really interesting, if you read Exodus 20, and the description of the 10 Commandments, at the end of that chapter is a description of how to build an altar. And it's, uh, that's interesting that the instructions for altar building would come, you know, a thousand years after Abraham, um, and I don't know how much longer after Abel. But altar building instructions come, and, they, and the Lord says through Moses to the people, don't make any other gods alongside of me not in place of me but alongside of me and i'm struck by that concern of the lord that you and i would be tempted to put something up in kind of competition with the lord and that we would as a fact you know our rituals of pouring out libations of course we don't do that But it's a way that I think uh, can be understood and interpreted in the light of the present in terms of how we give ourselves, how we expend ourselves, what we really value. Those who run after other gods uh, is a concern of the psalmist here, and he wants to distance himself from that. I'm not even going to name him, Um, but I look at... uh, the concerns that sometimes we have for what we put in place of, of God, I think, is, is something to be explored. The psalmist doesn't spend a lot of time doing it, but uh, I, I, we could go on and talk here about social media and how social media creates identity and how we forge our own particular identities craft them to fit into what we want and we use social media to do that. Uh, I think Steve Jobs sort of summed up so much of what the temptation in technology is where he married uh, Eastern spirituality with Western technology in a way that uh, was to absorb our identities and uh, find salvation in devices, it's just, there's how many things we could think of that can compete with our loyalty to the Lord. All, and many of them are really good in their place. But how they do need to be checked and brought under the priority of God David Goetz has written a book entitled Death by Suburb. And uh, it's an old book now, but to me it's not dated. And he talked about the danger of making our children into immortality symbols. That we live vicariously through our children and impose upon them our expectations and uh, our sense of meaning and significance through them And he said immortality symbols can be uh, really anything. They can be a bank account, they can be a vacation home, they can be children. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. These first four verses, to me, stress this sort of single-minded devotion to the Lord. And if I were looking for a New Testament caption for the first four verses, it might be something like Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or Galatians 2.20, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life that I now live in the body, in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those would be two good New Testament captions for the first four verses. Verse 5 Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. The image that's created here by the psalmist is the promise of the land, and that Israel would have the promised land. And David, writing as a king, uh, that land promise was so essential and important. Well, we don't have a promise of the land these days. So you ask yourself, what is the equivalent in the New Testament understanding to the land, to the promised land? And it is the church. It's the global body of Christ. And the fulfillment of the promises of the land come both now and in eternity. Land is tangible. It's earthy. It's there. Some of you know, you do have a, a strong sense of place. Uh, and you know the, the security and the, the importance of uh, experiencing that sense of place and how meaningful it is to you. Not all of us have it, some of us are pretty nomadic, but some of us really have this sort of landedness. Well, the equivalent ought to be, in the life of the Christian, the household of faith. That that ought to be that identity, that sense of, uh, and, and I know some of you have traveled to distant places and you've experienced what it's like to meet brothers and sisters in Christ that were strangers, but they become so immediately friends. And that's what I think the psalmist is describing here. The Lord alone is my portion of my cup. There's also an interesting dynamic that the Levites, the priestly class of Israel, were not given land. They lived on land that was from other tribes and they had designated places for them to live, but they were not specifically given a tribal allocation. And you wonder if that almost is in the mind of David here when he says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. So there was already sort of a symbol of a group of people within Israel that did not have sort of the designation of land. And now that becomes fulfilled in the church by Christians. We're not given land, but we're given a people, and we're given a destiny. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. This interpretation is interesting. Um, I listen to some people I mean you all do we all do whose life has been hard and difficult and challenging and yet they would agree with David and say the boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places why is that why is it that some people they go through bereavement loved ones are lost they go through cancer they go through failure, they go through financial difficulties, and yet they would heartily agree here with David. The boundary lines have fallen in me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now to put some concreteness into that for me, I couldn't be happier. But I lost my dad when he was 48, and that was rough on our family, economically, profoundly. The income was gone, and no insurance. Uh, A year before that, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and spent three weeks of my senior year in the hospital. Uh, and, And then following, I think, the stress of my father and myself, My mother had a heart attack. My brother was walking around wondering what's going to happen to me. (laughs) But I would say the boundary lines have fallen on me in pleasant places. The Lord has tremendously blessed. And, you know, I can look back and think, you know, as one person explained to me, it either is going to break you or it's going to really strengthen you and the Lord works. I find some people who, uh, well, I guess what really impresses me is not the negative side, what impresses me are people who've gone through hell and love the Lord. And there's a credibility about their testimony, a witness about their faithfulness to the Lord. Um, Now, there's some things I fear, like I'm sure some of you would share the feeling, Fears, you know, I fear the loss of a child, no matter how old they get, or the loss of a grandchild. And, uh, you know, I I feel like I have to be like Job and I have to uh, prepare myself because I live in a very fallen, broken, sin twisted, evil world. And I want to be prepared for that too. Not living with, you know, what, what would be the word, paranoid or. Uh, a neurosis because of those fears. I think this is a psalm that's based on faith, not fear. Faith in the power of God to sustain one's life no matter what. Verse 7, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I preached on this psalm two weeks ago in New York City at Central Presbyterian Church. Okay, I picked a psalm that was up in my mind. Um, And a young finance person came up to me afterwards. Every other person in New York City is a finance person, it seems. John Howard is his name. And... uh, he, uh, we had such a great conversation about this psalm. Um, it really impressed me, his, uh, his discernment and his perception. And he said, because I had sort of made this case, maybe not everybody could agree that the boundary lines have fallen on them in pleasant places. And he pointed to this phrase, even at night my heart instructs me. And he said, to be honest with you, I said, I came to church today very agitated uh, because this week the CEO, CEO of the firm is speaking to me. And I said, I have no idea what, whether it's up or down, whether this is going to be good or bad. But he said, I feel like whether it's good or bad, the Lord is here and the Lord counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. And that makes you think of the Hebrews passage, doesn't it? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Therefore, my heart is glad... And my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, to the realm of the dead. Now, you know what impressed the apostles about this psalm was this. This last section dealing with life and eternal life. This is what they pulled out. The Apostle Peter, in that most famous sermon, the Pentecost sermon, Peter looked at this psalm and he drew out from it these words, seeing what was to come. He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, referring to David, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did, he, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. So, what did the Apostle Peter see in Psalm 16? He saw in verse 10 the fulfillment of a promise that Christ would be raised... Because you have not abandoned me to the realm of the... remember we 've we 've said several times um, in preaching that Jesus prayed these psalms, and in the prayer of these psalms, Peter sees Jesus in reference to in reference to verse ten, but it wasn 't only Peter, it was the apostle Paul in his message in Poseidon antioch in acts twenty three he refers to he refers to Psalm 2, Isaiah 53, and then he refers to Psalm 16. They saw in this the hope of the resurrection because Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead. They don't belabor this connection. they just make it. And in the making of it, makes it just for us to go back and say, this speaks of the resurrection of Christ. This speaks of the hope of the resurrection for us. That's partly my interpretive understanding of how we should look at the Psalms. I think we should look at the Psalms through the eyes of the apostles and through the eyes of Jesus in order to understand their full meaning. David sees a hint of it in the Spirit, but I think it can be said that he writes better than he knew in the Spirit and points to a reality that will then be interpreted by the apostles. I hope that doesn't sound or seem distant to you, but I, I think it's very important to see why I'm saying life justifies living versus living the resurrection. Verse 11... You will make known to me the path of life. I think, sisters and brothers in Christ, we need to depend on that. That the Lord really is sovereign, the Lord is compassionate, the Lord is is caring, and that he will make known to us the path of life. You'll fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasure, pleasures at your right hand. What's going to happen when we die? Now, see if you can follow me here, because this may be a new thought. Hopefully it's not an heretical thought. Uh, but a new thought. When the Apostle Paul said, absent from the body, present with the Lord, I want to take Paul's words there very literally. That you and I will not experience in Christ some sort of interim period. Some undefined period of time where there's any separation between us and the Lord, between ourselves, body, mind, and soul, and the Lord. What's my reasoning on that? When we die, we enter into a completely different space-time understanding and dimension. We're limited right now in even being able to comprehend what that would be like. But as C.S. Lewis uh, illustrates time, our time is a line on a page. And C.S. Lewis would say, from God's time perspective, the whole page is God. It's a completely different space-time understanding. I find it encouraging to, to believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and passages like Thessalonians that talk about the trump blowing and will be caught up to um, in the sky. We've got to use all sorts of images, images and metaphors in order to describe a reality that we have not yet been able to comprehend. But this, I think, is true that we will immediately be with the Lord without any deficiency, fully there. Fully present, because the Hebrew mind knows nothing of a separation of body and spirit. It just doesn't know that. And you know who we'll see? We'll see the incarnate Lord. We will see face-to-face Christ, the Lord. We will see that. Faith is the earnest expectation of sight. It's not a denial of sight. It is the earnest expectation of sight. The older you get, the shorter life seems. You become very aware of its fragility, its temporariness. You begin to sort of perceive a different set of priorities and values. And you kind of pray, Lord, just get me there. Get me there, body, mind, and soul. Help me to please you in the meantime. Use me as you will you have made known to me the path of life. Life justifies living versus living the resurrection. Psalm 16 is a great Psalm, great Psalm. Well, um, one last thought, Um, and then we'll we'll, we'll pray. Uh, A friend of mine, uh, while I was working on Psalm 16, wrote to me and uh, he just made an interesting observation about an audience of one. And, uh, uh, you know, well, we've been watching the Olympics and uh, interesting how many world records have been broken without spectators. Uh, Interesting to see how they have performed so well without a stadium full of people. And yet it's been hard on the athletes, I think, because they're used to the kind of the support Uh, that great cloud of witnesses that we uh, reference to. But Athletes in Action describes this uh, audience of one this way. I just want to read two quick quotes, and then we'll pray. Audience of one. The intent of the phrase is to help Christian players remember that everywhere in life, even in a stadium full of people, We live and move and have our being in Jesus Christ. And it's Christ's pleasure that we should pursue above all else. And then my friend quoted from a group of the NFL's uh, Philadelphia Eagles and their embrace of this audience of one idea. When the lights go on and all eyes are fixed on us, Our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the creator of the universe. It's not just a slogan. It's a lifestyle. It's not about making our name famous. It's about making his name known to all in mankind and in everything we do. Living for him, playing for him, and giving him all the glory. Win, lose, or draw, we play for an audience of one. Lord God, thanks for this time with my sisters and brothers in Christ at the Advent. I pray for your blessing upon us and that we would take to heart, through the power of your Holy Spirit, the message that you have for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father and through the Spirit. Amen.